Steve is like seven feet, four inches tall or some stuff like that. <laughs> we're talking to Steve. Who's really tall. <laughs> That's not why we're talking to it's Steve. It's not though. why we're talking to him, but it is an important fact about him. Maybe not important. I, I, is it but important? It's a, it's a fact. It's a fact about him. Well, we can him. talk. To, when, we, when we put Steve on the couch in, in mental <laughs> hygiene corner. He's that, not going to fit. That, that element of the show. Then we can ask how important it is to him. But I was just going to say that, gonna that be a big couch. we are, as far as I can count, third on the list of, of Steve's um, Supreme Court tour, like post-Supreme Court argument tour. Right. Because uh, there was a great interview with you on First Mondays um, that I heard. And, of course, you and Bobby talked about it on right. uh, National Security Law podcast. And so, so many of the bases have already been covered, including the fact that Steve is six foot eight. Right. Now, when he, when Steve and Bobby talked about it on their own podcast, that was a bit like, you know, um, a backwoods hooch. That stuff was just, that, that stuff was just so fresh out of the still that it was, uh, that was, that was, that was liquid lightning. And then in the first Mondays, it was this very fruit forward California wine. I mean, it didn't have much, you know, it didn't have much time. It wasn't, wasn't in the barrel very long. We're getting stuff. It's now it's been in the barrel. Right. And it's really aged and it's really fine in, in its flavor and its nose. So this is this is the good stuff, actually. It's, it's funny because we just got an email this morning indicating that our show may be less wine and more rat poison. Did you oh, are you talking about <laughs> Listener Asher? Yeah, he took us to task for a somewhat goofy show. He took us to the woodshed in the best possible way. He took us to the woodshed in the way that your friend takes you to the woodshed. Right. Mm-hmm. He's he, he's been a listener for a long time. Um uh, I don't know what he would sound like on a podcast, but I know what he reads like, which is a depth and a clarity of of um, you know of a of a of a prophet. I mean, he is uh, he's got moral fire. We're going to put this to one side because we because we, we don't have time. We, we got to come back to it because I I won't say that he misunderstood because I don't think I haven't even listened back. No, but, it's but great. He, but I, he didn't pick up on what I intended. I and, think. and he yeah. also he he helps me understand much better. He always helps me understand something much better. What he's understanding, helping me understand this time much better, mm-hmm. is some really important things that in my mind differentiate podcasting from writing. Yeah, uh, and um, and we obviously also have a difference about how important we think purposes should be in interpreting statutes that have an ambiguity uh, grave enough to get them to the Supreme Court. Uh, Joe, can I interrupt? Sure. Do you think we should maybe talk to Steve Vladek right now? I do. <laughs> but I want but I want him to know that we're like we got it and it's exciting and we're going to talk about it yeah. not today. I, I was I was perfectly happy sitting here and letting you guys talk. I mean, I feel like that's what I do when I listen to the your podcast anyway. Oh, you 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 are a very sweet. You're very sweet Steve and you are a longtime supporter of of the show and and let's face it, a co-host. <laughs> um, but but there was just there was too much Vladek to contain in co-hosting our show every mm. now and then. That's why, you know, an explosion. It, and, and even like his own podcast wasn't enough. It's right. like, I got to get out and I got to talk to the world in the uh, in the Supreme Court. I think there's just a dearth of really interesting, you know, exciting law topics right now. And so, you know, a Supreme <laughs> Court case that has two different law professors, both arguing <laughs> about, you know, the Supreme Court's original jurisdiction. I mean, that if that's not podcast material, I, I don't know what is. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. So, we, so so much has been mined, though. So maybe we should start. We've well, okay. I know where we should start. We should take total credit for the fact that you um, that you were able to argue in front of the Supreme Court because I feel like it was our show that we did with you about these cases when they were pending for cert mm. that pushed them over the edge. Because I, mean, I, I have yeah. I, I have I have no evidence to the contrary. Well, and and uh, you mentioned on a in a prior uh, interview uh, about having done six moots. 
Um, and I'm sure that in that six, you were counting that episode of oral argument, right? Well, I mean, I, I feel like that was a that was a cert stage mood. Yeah, ah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll talk about the argument in a moment, but but. Man, oh man! Do we this have brief. to? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I thought it went very well for all three of the lawyers. So but let's. But um, Steve, do you want to tell us what's at issue, or Joe? Like either of you, like, someone who's not me. Hold on, we got it. We can link to the prior episode to get a some of the summary of Dalmazi. I thought we were going to try to focus on jurisdiction. Yeah, but I think to understand, you at least need to understand what the case is about. Like you need to like the okay. outline of it, right? I mean, am I wrong about that? Like the listeners are like, they're, they're like, they know who Steve is, but they're like, and they probably know, <laughs> but they're like, what, what's going on here? What's happening? And, and you seem, you seem irritated, Joe. Not at all. N- never. <laughs> so this case is a, is a, I think a somewhat strange mixture of several hyper-technical statutory provisions and, and kind of fed courts issues with a, with an overriding, like, really important theme about civilian control of the military yes. that are going together in ways that are kind of hard to get your head around. And mm-hmm. for, for what it's worth, when I listened to the argument, um, I, I know that you had talked to, to um, uh, I think it was you and Bobby, and I think you said on First Mondays that you, maybe you're a little pessimistic because of the kind of lack of questioning, especially that the other side got. I, I, this is one of those rare cases, though, where even when the justices asked you questions like directly about um, um, uh, like the savings clause, like they were asking you questions that were not like necessarily probing like like uh, um, uh, potential contradictions in the brief. They were just asking you questions which were flat out like answered in your brief. Yeah, just like flat out answered. And it was like I felt like they had either they had determined that they weren't going to reach any of those issues already or they were still trying to get a toehold on how all these pieces fit together. Yeah, I mean, and, and my sense, Christian, is it's probably the latter. I mean, so so I sat down after my topside argument where, you know, the only thing that had happened so far was was me and the court thinking that one of two things was true, um, either that I had totally crushed it and was on my way to a unanimous win um, or that they just, like, weren't that deep into the merits. And so, you know, there was nothing to actually take away from the topside argument. When Brian Fletcher, you know, the fantastic lawyer who argued for the government was done, I was completely convinced of the latter with almost a hint of, you know, the leaning here is toward the government because Brian got, you know, a ton of questions on the constitutional appellate jurisdiction question, which I know we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, He got exactly one question on the merits and it was from the chief and it was basically a sort of paraphrase of, um, so how would you like us to rule for you? <laughs> and so, so you know, I, it, it's possible, I guess, that they just hadn't really gotten all the way into the weeds yet and didn't know and maybe still don't know what they really think. Um, but I think the, the fairer read is that, you know, I just, for whatever reason, we weren't able to convince them that there's a real there there. Um, which then, of course, gets us back to, to our podcast from last summer, you know, so why big grant cert? <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't, reading your brief and reading the government's reply and listening to the argument, there's a I got this sense like I can't figure out how you would lose. I mean, the basic issue, right, is that you've got people in the military who are uh, sitting on um, a court in what could be described as a, as a civil position. And they, they were um, they went through um, uh, advice, uh, nomination uh, by the by the president and, and the uh, advice and consent of the Senate. So they were appointed through the appointments clause. And um, there's a statute which seems to say, you you know, you can't do that. You can't sit on. And, and if you do take an uh, if you are um, either elected to office 
or you are, and this is a post-Civil War statute, uh, or you are um, appointed to a, um, to a, what's the right word for this? I'm thinking civil position, but it's a civil office, civil office right? Mm-hmm. Um, then you kind of automatically lose your military status, like you're out of the military. Yep. I got the sense from the beginning that like the court doesn't want that to happen to these four officers. Like they, they just, they, they just need a way not to say that for whatever reason, because of these weird things that we're having trouble understanding, all of a sudden these guys who've been in the military for a long time are suddenly not, they're, they're no longer in the military they, they, and they don't even, you know, that that has happened. And so I'd, I was kind of surprised in the argument that it didn't come up that maybe the solution is, a, and I don't know if this is a solution, a private bill from Congress, which like reinstates them. Is that a possibility? You know, there was nothing, there was no discussion about what could be curative of that bad outcome if the court agreed with your position. I, I tried to offer that a little bit in a response. I mean, the, the very first question I actually got in the whole argument was from Justice Ginsburg, and it was on this exact point. Right. Um, and, and I tried to suggest to her that, you know, there's nothing that would stop um, Congress from making these officers whole. There's actually an old Supreme Court case that says that the government's not even allowed to proceed against those officers for back pay, you know, even if the courts conclude that they were wrongly continuing to serve as officers for this period of time. Um, so, you know, I think, I mean, I think, I don't know if that was responsive. I mean, like, like basically all of my exchanges during the top side of the argument, you know, I, I thought I gave a responsive answer and then got no pushback. And I don't know if that's because I was convincing or because, you know, we were all just up there having fun, right? <laughs> but it was, it was really weird that like I didn't, you know, no one really pushed back on any of my answers. And it was just like, can you describe your position for us? Steve, your client... Dalmazi, how many other clients are there in, in the case for you? So the Supreme Court case is the consolidation of three cert petitions. Is everyone uh, on review from the uh, all of the clients are on review from the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, right? Yeah. So so the cases are all similarly situated in that respect. What separates out the cases in the Supreme Court? There are basically two sets of cases. There are what I like to call the Dalmazi cases, which are cases where, in addition to the underlying merits question, there's this awkward procedural question about the timing of their challenges. Yeah, and lay, lay that lay that to the side, okay? The timing okay. thing. Um, okay. uh, if people who want to read about it, it's in the government's brief, it's in your brief, yeah, the, the, like, the timing issues there. To, so I, put that to the side. I was all geared up, but go ahead, Joe. Go ahead. So, lay okay. it on the table. So, so, so the, wait, so there wait a minute. Wait a minute. Uh, stop. What? I want Steve to stop. Okay. All right, so <laughs> here's, my, here's my next question. Um, so, so they're coming up from the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Joe is going to give you the oral argument you didn't have. The other, <laughs> the, I can't wait. The other court that is in question, and the reason why I think this case can be hard for everyone to get their head around, including the justices, right, is the, the court to which these uh, people were uh, named in a way that makes the case problematic – uh, as as a legal procedure is a different court, the the Court of Military Commission Review. Yes, true. Okay, so your theory of the case is their job on the Court of Military Commission Review displaces them from the Court of Appeals to the Armed Forces. They're no longer in the military. You can't serve on that court if you're not in the military. Therefore, the court that heard the appeal in his criminal matter was not a properly constituted court because it had randos on it. Do I have that right? Uh, just about the only. I, there's one layer missing. So we're not actually attacking the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, which is the civilian appeals court that sits atop the military justice system. There's an intermediate appeals court between CAF, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, 
and the trial level courts martial. Um, and that's the court that we're attacking, right? That uh, That's the one that wasn't properly constituted. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Right. That the Army and Air Force courts of criminal appeals, and it's both of them because there were judges, in our view, wrongfully serving on both of them. Um, Dalmazi is an Air Force case, but three of the eight cases before the Supreme Court are Army cases. So what we're saying is the Army and Air Force courts of criminal appeals that affirmed the convictions of these eight petitioners um, were improperly constituted. And and I think a, a listener can now begin to get a flavor for, uh, even if you, one hasn't read the briefs, um, that there are multiple appellate layers here. Mm-hmm. And typically, the I think the court is, with all the complexities it deals with, typically, you know, a district court case that goes to a court of appeals, maybe it got heard in bank, maybe it didn't, but then it goes to the Supreme Court. The the routine case they hear is actually much more straightforward procedurally than this is, which involves lots of courts, uh, some uh, improperly constituted, and then you get to this jurisdictional thing, well, oh my gosh, are they even courts at all in the right sense for purposes of the court hearing it as an appellate matter, uh, because we know it's not valid as an original matter, I suppose. I think that's right. Yep. Were you wanting to move to the jurisdictional point, Joe? Is well, I'm. I'm just trying to set up why this. Like, I actually don't share um, what what I take to be some of Steve's pessimism, because I think this is an exceptionally difficult set of structural things to get clear in your mind to even know what the consequences would be of holding one way or the other. I mean, listen, there, there is a scenario. The, the best possible way, I think, to read the argument in my favor is basically, Joe, much along the lines that you're laying out, which is that it's a really hard case. The justices, for whatever reason, had not fully unpacked all of the layers of its complexities. And so the argument was actually largely irrelevant other than to get me to describe um, you know, the relevant positions and the relevant pressure points, um, and that that's why all of the focus of the argument was on the issue that was much more palpable and tangible to the justices, i.e. their constitutional power to review the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces in the first place. Um, I, I think that's one possibility. I just think that, that it's, hard to, it's hard to understand why the government got no merits questions on that view of yeah. where the court was. Fair enough. And I, I just think... You know, I, I, it was Breyer's questions to you that I thought were going to maybe point toward something. Because what what I sensed was one, like I said, the Ginsburg question, Ginsburg's questions revealed, I think, probably what is widely shared among the court, which is a dis a discomfort with this kind of what seems like a rather severe automatic penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but but secondly, there's this super important principle in this statute. It was a subject of our last show, right? That. It would be a very different country if active duty military folks were running for and winning lots of elective offices and were being appointed to lots of civil positions. And we would have a kind of, you know, our government would be composed of a lot of active military people. That would be very different. And we concluded after the Civil War, bad policy. Um, But the justices also sense that this, um, is it CCA or CAC, Court of Criminal Appeals, CCA, right? The CCAs. That, you know, let's be honest, these are military courts, right? And there's there's a sense that, like, that big policy may not be touched by the technical irregularity here, if it is that, and therefore we should interpret the law in a way not to find such an irregularity. And but but I'm not sure how they're going to do that. That's why I was kind of curious about the lack of questions. Like, do they already have a theory that buttons all this right. up? Because I, 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 
I didn't see a way out of this puzzle that doesn't do a lot of violence to that or, or potential violence to that big issue. So I, I think there's one way out of the puzzle, and I think this might have been, you know, again, if we're trying to read this as optimistically as possible, which has not been what I've been doing for most of the last, uh, uh, you know, nine days. Um, you know, one way to look at the the one substantive exchange that the court had with Brian Fletcher on the merits, the chief justice's colloquy with him, is that the chief was sort of suggesting a possible result where the court actually sides with us on the merits, but sides with the government on the remedy yeah. and holds that, yes, in fact, we are right that the Court of Military Commission Review is the kind of civil office that's covered by the dual office holding ban. We're right that um, Congress did not authorize military officers to be appointed to that civil office. Um, and it's really important to give the this important statute, you know, it's it's due that it be that the court actually say that, even in a case where we're not going to get relief. But that we're not going to get relief because either we're not going to retroactively kick these guys out of the military, right? Maybe the remedy should only be prospective, or because of this, you know, what the government calls a savings clause that Congress added to the statute in 1983, that, you know, we have a perfectly, I think, good argument for it doesn't apply here, but you could argue it does, right? And so it seems to me that one scenario is that the court actually splits the difference and says, yes, there was a violation of the dual office holding ban here, but, you know, we're going to, we're not going to reverse the convictions because the solution should be forward looking, not backward looking. And that, that argument that, you know, maybe the savings clause works, it relies on kind of a weird definition of assigns, right? That is yep. inconsistent with the rest of your, like, it seems like you could, like you could fix any one piece of this, but at the cost of a really weird argument on the other pieces, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, you know, I, I mean, one of the awkward things about this case is, you know, I had what twenty-five minutes, not counting rebuttal, to try to walk the court through, you know, uh, basically the more time I have to explain to people the story of the dual office holding ban itself, the story of the nineteen eighty-three amendments to the ban, and the story of the military commissions acts, the more I can convince them that we're right. Yeah. Um, right. That that the more context you know, I think the more our argument makes sense. But you know, that's I just have to hope that that comes through in the briefs because it certainly I think did not come through in the argument. Yeah. So the jurisdictional threshold uh, about whether you know the the court can even review the case uh, comes sort of comes in from the side, uh, and and. Uh, was actually uh, the subject of an amicus brief uh, by Professor Bamzai at the University of Virginia. Interesting brief, obviously. Uh, he moves for argument time. He gets it. Also very interesting. Uh, both you and the, and the United States agreed that he was incorrect, right? You're, both of you have a theory that, uh, that, that the court can hear a case on, a, uh, on cert from the, uh, from the CAF, um, Court of Appeals, uh, now I've forgotten the name, what that name stands for. Um, <laughs> Court of Appeals to the Armed Forces, yeah, maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, if, if, if Bamzai is right and this court is, although it's, it's called a court, uh, it's within uh, the executive branch and therefore is effectively on all fours with Marbury against Madison. If he's right about that, what are some of the weirdest consequences that would flow from that conclusion? That 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 other pe- that people would think, oh, that can't be right, um, because I think that's going to have a lot to do with whether or not people are willing to accept this theory uh, in a in a serious way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a real sort of question about just how formalistic 
one wants to be here. I mean, I think that there, there are two possible reasons why Aditya could be right. Um, and they both require sort of differing levels of formality in one's constitutional analysis. So if he's right that CAF, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, is uniquely outside the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction because of its location, because it's in the executive branch, um, that probably doesn't have like preposterous sweeping doctrinal consequences. It'll just have some awkward practical consequences where you could have, for example, capital cases in the military justice system. There's actually one, you know, making its way up right now that the Supreme Court is, you know, physically incapable of hearing appeals in, which would be unique. I mean, it would be unique among any possible, you know, capital case in the contemporary American justice system. But wait, Steve, there's always habeas, right? Well, so this is where things get messy. So there's habeas, but habeas in the military justice context is actually incredibly deferential and has been since 1953. Um, the standard for habeas review collaterally in an Article Three court of a court-martial conviction is only whether the military gave, quote, full and fair consideration, unquote, to the petitioner's constitutional claims. So it doesn't matter how incorrect the military's resolution of a constitutional argument is, if the military, you know, gave that claim a full airing, um, it's, you know, it's it's theoretically precluded in habeas. So this is this is like EDPA on steroids. It's like EDPA on steroids. Now, I mean, I think you could argue. Now, and I wait, think Steve, folks, is that by statute, by the way, that the language you read, or is that a case? No, no, it's it's a case called Burns versus Wilson from 1953, and there's actually so this could change that. Well, so that's where I was going. So there's a really good Frankfurter dissent from the denial of rehearing in Burns about why that rule makes no sense. It especially makes no sense um, in a world in which, you know, we're thinking that the Supreme Court literally cannot review these convictions directly. Um, but I think the other thing that would happen is if this actually, if the Supreme Court actually ruled this way, I think you'd see a lot of pressure on Congress to give somebody else, maybe the D.C. Circuit, um, cert-like jurisdiction over the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, which, of course, would raise no problem under Adichie's theory. So, right. you know, if the court goes the narrow, the, you know, CAF is weird because in the executive branch route, I think it could have some very strange consequences, but I think they'd largely be limited to the military justice system. And don't, don't the Board of Immigration Appeals, doesn't that go to the D.C. Circuit? Uh, it, goes to, it goes to whatever the relevant geographic circuit is. But it goes to the Circuit Court of Appeals first? I mean, yep. I, yeah, that's yeah, what I thought. Yeah, and then from there. Right. I mean, under the Hobbs Act, right, most judicial review of administrative action is, you know, in the circuit courts. But I actually think the better analogy here is... The territorial Supreme Courts, so like the Supreme Court of Guam and the Supreme Court of Puerto Rico, when, when Congress basically authorized the creation of those territorial courts, there was like a 15-year pilot program where decisions of those courts on questions of federal law were reviewable by the relevant geographic circuit via certiorari, where Congress basically took the, the Guam Supreme Court, the you know Northern Mariana Supreme Court, um, and treated them as like quasi-state Supreme Courts where the ninth or third or whatever circuit um, was acting in the Supreme Court's capacity. And I think that would be the analogy you'd see here if we got that far. Yeah, it makes you wonder why we don't do that with states. Like, there are more people in Puerto Rico than Wyoming, right? Yeah. No, I mean, it's a, it's a, I, mean I, think, I think there are federalism reasons why we don't do that with states, but of course it wouldn't be unconstitutional. That's actually the exact issue I want to get to. So, the, so it's Mar is it Martin against Hunter's lessee that, that holds that you can get to the Supreme Court from a state Supreme Court? Um, yep. Okay. So 
so why isn't that, what's the best argument against that being the rule? What's the best argument for that being unconstitutional un- under Marbury? Right. So the best argument is that the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction is limited to reviewing those tribunals that are themselves created pursuant to Article 3. Right, that basically the Supreme Court can only exercise appellate jurisdiction um, over Article Three lower courts, um, and so all other judicial proceedings have to go through some Article Three lower court before they get to the Supreme Court. And that would be another way to describe. Uh, the, I mean, the court could say. I think it would send <laughs> massive earthquakes through the body politic. But, but I guess another way the court could describe a ruling against you here is using that principle. Right? It could say the reason. Yeah, we they're, can- they're not, I mean, they're never going to do it because the problem is, as as Justice Story suggested, I think quite correctly in Martin versus Hunter's Lessee, if the Supreme Court didn't have the power directly to review state courts on questions of federal law, we probably wouldn't let state courts decide questions of federal law. There, you know, there, there are two sides to this equation. And so I think you're never going to have the Supreme Court hold that its appellate jurisdiction is limited to reviewing um, Article Three lower courts. And frankly, guys, as a pure originalist matter, I mean, I think there's you know, there's no evidence to really say that that was correct. Right. Oh, I, I, okay. But I think what's really important about what we've just laid on the table is that, um, f- you know, functionalism is now inside the house, right? Yes. Um, and that's a really critical moment, both because it means other certain other sorts of arguments are going to be have, have to be reckoned with on those terms. I don't know. I mean, you could and, be beca- and because um, uh it happened a very long time ago, <laughs> right? So, oh, 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 Joe, it happened. It happened. No, forget Martin versus Hunter. Let's see. It happened at the founding. I mean, the the notion that you can have military courts at all is a functionalist interpretation of the Constitution. Fair enough. Yeah. Right. I mean, Article three, Article three, Section one, right, refers to all of the judges, um, right, of the supreme and inferior courts having life tenure and salary protection. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not true of military judges. So, you know, I guess there's, there, there's an awkwardness here in that the functionalist ship sailed, you know, back in 1787. Um, and so to sort of now try to retroactively morph these kinds of formalistic principles of jurisdiction onto these functional accommodations is going to produce some pretty awkward results. Well, there is, there is one step between the kind of appellate means appeal from an Article Three decision and pure functionalism. And that might be one where you say that appeal means appeal from a court which has been, which is the kind of final adjudicator of a sovereign, mm-hmm. of a sovereign entity, right? And that that kind of formal explanation of what appeal means uh, at least captures the, captures the states. And the territories. And the territories. And it does a lot of the work, right, that you... Um, so it does, but, but Christian, it doesn't get you the circuit courts. Which circuit courts do you mean? Um, all of them, right? I mean, what in what sense is the D.C. Circuit the final word of any sovereign? Oh well, but but so I mean, there is a process in Article Three for the creation of inferior courts, and in, in, oh, so you're saying oh, so you're saying either or, so either right, either right, lower right. Article Three courts or so now right. we're getting toward so now we're getting toward a theory that mix. I think will th- this is this is the Will Bode theory, mm-hmm. um, which he is will will you know our friend at the University of Chicago is writing an article about this. He has a couple of blog posts about this. And Will's theory is very much like that Christian, right, which is that an entity has to be exercising the judicial power of some sovereign. Of some sovereign, right. And, and, so, that's, and so for Will, state courts are easy because they're exercising the sovereignty of the, of the relevant state. Um, 
and federal courts are easy, you know, Article Three courts are easy because they're exercising the judicial power of the United States. And the hard cases are, you know, public rights, territories, and the military. Now, Will, Will's theory, I think, I mean, you should ask him this, but Will's theory, I think, is premised on the notion that the territorial courts are exercising the sovereignty of the territory. That's actually not true. I mean, the, you know, just to, just to be, not to put too high a point on it, the Article 4 U.S. District Court for the District of Guam and the Article 1 D.C. Superior Court are entirely created by and controlled by Congress and the federal government. The Guam legislature has nothing to say about the Guam District Court. The D.C. Council is by law prohibited from altering the jurisdiction of the D.C. Superior Court and D.C. Court of Appeals. So They're exercising the sovereignty of the United States. Both of them are. Right. All of them are. Yeah. Um, and I don't know – and military courts. I mean I don't know what sovereign – I don't know how you could sort of – I don't know how the federal government could be a separate sovereign, you know, a schizophrenic separate sovereign um, for purposes of – the sort of military versus civilian justice systems. You know, maybe you bite the bullet and and we'd have to think of, you know, there could be very formal textual reasons, but there might even be functionalist reasons to adopt this more formal approach, right? That you can only get directly to the Supreme Court through um, through a kind of sovereign empowered decision maker or right? a final decision maker for a sovereign. And, or an Article Three court. Or, or an Article Three court, which is like, yeah, exactly. So, you know, this is the kind of constitutionally um, laid out scheme. And then for all of these other courts, all, the only fix you need is a statute that kind of diverts these cases first to either a United States Court of Appeals, a district court, or uh, uh, or the like. So wh- I don't understand why why you would need that diversion, right? Because if if the if the reason that Supreme Court review of a territorial Supreme Court is proper is because that territorial Supreme Court is exercising the judicial power of the United States in a way that is okay, given Congress's power over that territory, right? Um, then why isn't a court of appeals for the armed forces similarly reviewable? Like, it's, it seems to me the same phenomenon is happening, right? So, so this is the argument that I tried to make in the oral argument, Dalmazi, and certainly this is the government's position, which is once you accept that the Supreme Court can directly review territorial courts, which the Supreme Court has expressly held. I mean, there's an 1894 case that I think really ought to be sort of more part of a Fed court's casebook and canon called Co., um, where the Supreme Court actually spends, you know, five or six pages specifically thinking and about and resolving its power to directly review the then Article One Court of Public Land Claims. Um, maybe it was private land claims. I always get the title wrong. This is out. This is these are uh, basically established to deal with the um, Mexico, the Mexi- Mexican Mexico land claims. residents, and yeah, in yeah. the United States. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's always there's already the precedent that if it's ter- that the Supreme Court can directly review territorial courts. I don't think anyone, including Aditya, is suggesting that the Supreme Court should overrule those precedents, <laughs> right? And so right. the question is: Is there any logical basis for distinguishing CAF? And guys, that's how we get back to its administrative location as the sort of only real hook here. And I guess you know, for me, the question is: If you're the Supreme Court and you're thinking about where to draw the line between your original and your appellate jurisdiction. What is more relevant to you, that the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces is administratively located in the Department of Defense or that it's constituted as a court of record by Congress, that it issues binding, preclusive judgments in what no one disputes are cases and controversies for purposes of Article 3 that include criminal penalties up to and including death? 
Um, and, you know, to me, it's a no-brainer which side of the line that falls on. So, you know, I guess that, that's, that's why I find this a little bit um, not frustrating, but sort of this is the wrong – it's the right fight but the wrong case, right? That, you know, Justice Kennedy, I think, asked um, Brian Fletcher at one point, is there any way we can resolve this issue without defining what a court, what a court is? is? Yeah. And I think that was a telling question. Like, I don't think the justices are actually worried that CAF itself is on the wrong side of the line. I think they're worried about how to draw the line in a way that puts CAF and the territorial courts and the state courts on the right side, but puts the NLRB, the SEC, the Board of Immigration Appeals, all of those agencies on the wrong side. And I think that's what they were looking for. And that's going to, they're going to be looking for some functional test, presumably, if they're going to do that. Because otherwise, you're going to be in the boat. I think the boat position is the one which is consistent, which doesn't rely on that kind of functional so the Bode position, I think, is the most like normatively attractive on a blank slate. The problem is, is that you know the Supreme Court has to grapple with its own jurisprudence here. Yeah. So the government's position is sort of a, an interesting hybrid of formalism and functionalism. The government's position is all you have to decide here is that if it's a category of non-Article Three court that you've expressly upheld already, then you can exercise appellate jurisdiction over that court. Um, and you don't have to worry about cases where you know, you're not sure about the underlying proceeding. So basically, the government's position is all you have to hold here is that military courts are like territorial courts, and you can save the messier question of public rights disputes and administrative adjudication for later. And we tried to offer in our reply brief and to a lesser degree at the argument a little bit more of a functional test that certainly it is sufficient if the tribunal under review is a court of record. Um, and you know, Justice Breyer and I had a sort of yeah. awkward exchange about yeah. what that means. <laughs> yeah, and you said they tell, like, they take a transcript, they produce, all, you know, they they create a judgment. Well, listen, I mean, a court of record is actually a very specific term. I yeah. mean, Congress does not willy nilly call things courts of record, and a court of record, the whole idea is that the court of record exists independent of the personnel involved in it. So it's different from like a court martial, um, which is just you know, a, which is not a standing tribunal. You know, court of record, I think, is a sort of sufficient basis on which to rest the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction. But we also suggest in our reply brief that, um, you know, Chief Justice Marshall's opinion in the Bowman case Mm -hmm. four years after Marbury um, already basically suggested that that the court should apply sort of a functional, you know, is what we're looking at really a judicial type proceeding. So I, I think there are a lot of ways to skin this cat that still put CAF on the, you know, right side and that still you know, sustain the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction over the military justice system. How much help is the is the functionalism about its being a judicial in character, the 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 the, un, the lower proceeding? When your worry is, you know, could Congress send things directly from this agency to this courthouse, which seem to be on their mind a lot? I mean, one uh, sort of a practical answer to that concern is it's not going to happen. Like <laughs> the, the, those things are already set up. They already go to a court of appeals. The NLRB. Right. And, right, and, and, and Congress and Congress. There's no suggestion, right, that Congress is actually in any hurry to give the Supreme Court direct appellate review over the NLRB or the SEC. Right. Or the PTO or any of the other things that that do have. Uh, but but I suppose if you're if that is your worry. Oh, my gosh. Tomorrow, Congress could create another agency and it could have some appellate body within it. Uh, and then they could send cases from there to here, right, uh, to the Supreme Court. How does talking about the judicial character of the of the lower event, right, how does that actually help address that concern? It seems to me it doesn't. Right. So, so again, I mean, I think this, this is why I think, Joe, the justices are not super happy with a purely functional approach. 
right? Because you know, if they if they write an opinion that says here are the six criteria that something has to satisfy before we can exercise direct appellate review over it, you know, they're giving Congress a roadmap for how to do what they don't want Congress to do. Well, let's go to that. And, if we and that writing, there's no indication that Congress is interested in doing, by the way. But yeah. we, no, no, no. But, but if we were writing on a truly clean slate, so like I understand, like I, I think, you know, uh, Justice Marshall in Marbury, like it was an amazingly deft touch, right, to define appellate in this way in order to establish judicial review while at the same time diminishing the authority of the Supreme Court, right? It was, a sim- it was a, an amazing tightrope balancing act mm-hmm. um, that, that did an amazing thing. But if we didn't have that, like, what, why, why? Christian, what are you asking wrong? if Marbury is rightly decided? <laughs> well, I, I am. Ask an answer. Well, I, I, I'm asking, like, so if we really are committed to functionalism, what is the policy harm? Right. Of, of having the Supreme Court exercise, quote-unquote, appellate review of decisions of the NLRB. Right. Like, it seems ridiculous, but that, but that may just be a reason why Congress wouldn't do it. Like, but what is the constitutional principled interest in preventing that? And then secondarily, a kind of follow-up question is, um, could Congress provide that the Court of Appeals can hear questions and finally determine them and prohibit the question from going to the Supreme Court? Um, so those are two very different questions. Um, so let me try to take them in order. So first, I, I mean, listen, I, I, I'll, I will confess and, and hope that no justices are listening um, that I actually think the right, the right normative white, you know, blue sky answer on the Article Three question is purely functional. And that if Congress wants to turn the NLRB into something that for all intents and purposes looks, smells, and quacks like a court and it's just the NLRB and not the NLRC, that that should be sufficient for Article Three purposes. Um, and I think there's not, not only is that, I think, the sort of clearest way to look at this normatively, I think it's where Marshall ended up too. I mean, you know, for all the talk of Marbury, and this was actually, you know, the, the part of the transcript that, that no one got all the way to in my response to Justice Kennedy about whether Marbury is rightly decided, I don't think you can read Marbury here without reading Bowman because Marshall, I think, was quite cognizant in Bowman of the potential breadth of his opinion in Marbury when it came to drawing the line between the Supreme Court's original and appellate jurisdiction. And so four years later, he says, guys, everybody chill out, right? This is not like crazy. Marbury is a narrow point about, you know, when we can't hear cases. Look at this case, Bowman. Where, some, where, where the detainee is asking us for an original writ of habeas corpus. Well, there was some proceeding below that led to his confinement, therefore it's appellate. So, you know, I guess my sort of gut reaction to the, to the pure normative question, Christian, is the line between agencies and courts is very much a blurry one that depends on how Congress structures the agency. And, you know, don't take my word for it. I mean, the Supreme Court's decision, what, three years ago in B&B Hardware, about when agency adjudications will and will not be preclusive suggests that, you know, not all agency adjudications are equal, that some look more like courts than others. And I, I mean, I guess I was wondering, like, what, and I know stuff has been written on this, I just haven't read it, um, but, like, why would you design a system this way? So, so I, I can think of several hypothetical reasons, but maybe this is known, like why you would say the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction over these matters, but appellate over all these others. Like one reason you do that is to ensure that that people can bring suits like you right in the Constitution. Any of these kinds of suits you can bring right in the Supreme Court. We want to make sure you can do that appellate otherwise. But actually, we don't care if you bring in more. Like, you know, this is the non-restrictive right. version of that. Right. Another, but, you know, is there another reason like like we want it to be appellate because we want 
unless Congress makes an affirmative decision to establish federal courts, we want state courts to retain kind of original fact-finding power? Like, is there some federalism angle? Like, I, I can't actually figure it out. It's not quite federalism. I actually did spend some time in late December going back through the originalism of the original appellate jurisdiction distinction in Article 3. Yeah. Um, and there's actually a lot of really good scholarship on this. Um, Akhil Amar has a great article on this. My colleague Louise Weinberg has a really good article on this. So it turns out that the, what the founders were really worried about in differentiating between the Supreme Court's original and appellate jurisdiction is they really did not want that many cases going right to the Supreme Court. And that was mostly because of travel, um, right? Oh. That, what they were, that, that the real thing on their mind was that poor you know, plaintiffs or defendants in the fringes of the country circa 1787, right? So Ohio, right, would have to be, you know, would have to schlep all the way to Washington for a trial. Because um, if it's an original case, presumably you'd have to have fact-finding. Um, and that's what they wanted to avoid. And so original jurisdiction was the exception for those cases where the founders thought there were compelling reasons to not require the party to first go through some lower court, either state or federal. And almost all of those are like foreign ambassadors, people who are going to be in yeah, D.C. There, yeah, there, or, there are only the two. Capital. I mean, the, the original yeah. jurisdiction clause is only about cases affecting ambassadors. And as you say, presumably those guys are already in whatever the capital is the at capital, the time. Yeah. Or cases in which a state is a party. Um, and so the theory is that like a state as a litigant, perhaps less of a, less of a burden, but also a state as a party, much more reason to be worried that a lower level court is going to be biased one way or the other. Is it state as a party or between states? Well, so this is – now we're getting into real Fed courts nerdistry. <laughs> Great. The language of Article 3 is state as party. And of course, there are a couple of different ways that a state as a party could get into a federal court. Congress by statute – has only provided for original exclusive jurisdiction when it's a controversy between two or more states. Um, if it's just state as party, then the Supreme Court has concurrent original jurisdiction, but it's concurrent with the jurisdiction of the lower federal courts. And they never exercise that. And they never as a practical that. matter. Yeah. Um, right. So, so all this is to say, Christian, that you know, I, I actually think, and this is, believe it or not, I actually, I actually stand by what I said to Justice Kennedy. <laughs> I, I actually it. think. Marshall's specific interpretation of the original jurisdiction clause of Article 3 in Marbury is correct, right, that, that the founders would not have wanted Congress to have the power to alter in either direction the Supreme Court's original jurisdiction. I just think that, you know, it was a constitutional question that was unnecessarily um, addressed given the ambiguous language of Section 13 of the Judiciary Act. Well, here's why these these two, the the other question I asked is I, it was kind of connected because I was just wondering in my mind like what kind of thing is the Supreme Court right and and in particular like yeah. what is this like this is one of the only provisions in the Constitution which really kind of lays out the kind of thing that the the framers may be imagining this court will be yep um, and what you discussed about travel makes me think about this other question differently like what was it imagined that um, that the Supreme Court could be relief that there could be no way to hear a case in the Supreme Court on appeal. So, the, I, so I think the short answer there is is yes, um, right? That there there were. I mean, listen. The as I teach my Fed Court students every year, um, if you guys think about diversity cases that actually don't go to federal court, so that are either below the amount in controversy or where it's a local defendant and you start in state court, right? So the two classic types of diversity cases where you can't have federal jurisdiction. Those are cases that the Supreme Court can't hear, right? Because there's no appeal under 1254, 1257, sorry, um, from a state court if it's just on a state law question. So 
you know, there are actually tons of examples of cases that are defined by Article 3, Section 2, that are even today outside the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction. Well, well, I know there's like certificate of appealability. I mean, there are various kinds of procedural doctrines that can bar appeals for various you know, procedural reasons. But but I have in mind, and it doesn't seem like that, because, uh, like the example that you gave, that Congress passes a statute saying this kind of question yep. can be brought and resolved in the uh, United States uh, uh, District Court for the District of Rhode Island. And, and nobody else. There shall be no appeal from any decision, from, you know, which, and I get that if, if it involves custody, presumably there's habeas and habeas can wind its way up. Um, and there's a question about constitutional habeas, I guess, that could maybe no, regulate no, but Christian, how, I mean, you're yeah. asking, I mean, you're, you're asking the classic, you know, Henry Hart Fed courts question, which is, you know, are there federal cases that Congress can make somebody other than the, than the U.S. Supreme Court the last word in, right? And, you know, the Supreme Court has... I think quite famously never answered that question, even at even as it has tolerated um, a number of historical examples suggesting that the answer might be yes. Hmm. And the and the textual hook there is is the exceptions clause in Article yep. Three. Yep. So 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 one of my favorite opinion. I mean, I'm I, as you guys know from prior podcasts. Like my 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 secret favorite justice is actually Justice Souter. And one of my one of my favorite Souter opinions of all time is his concurring opinion in Felker versus Turpin in 1996, where he says, you know, the exceptions clause, there, there's, an, there's actually this massive open question about whether the exceptions clause is plenary, such that Congress can take away all of our appellate jurisdiction, or whether there are some limits on it. And in cases in which there really is no mechanism for a litigant to get a constitutional question to this court, um, you know, he said, I think the exceptions clause question would be open. Hmm. Now, yeah, in a way, that was should... our first conversation with Steve ever, I think, was the Felker's yep. oh, episode, yep. right? So so in a way, we've worked our way back around to, uh, I mean, I guess another question you could raise sort of coming at, coming at this from the other angle is to say, um, would, it, would it be constitutional to prevent the Supreme Court from hearing an appeal from CAF? Well, I mean, this is, so the government makes a lot out of this argument in other contexts. So, you know, Congress did not give the Supreme Court appellate jurisdiction over CAF until 1983, which is quite late. Um, I mean, if you think about, you know, CAF, or at least its predecessor, the Court of Military Appeals, you guys think the acronyms are bad enough. <laughs> you know, if you do it over time, they've all changed. Um, so so the, the CAF was created in 1950. And for its first 33 years of existence, you know, it had the last word on every question that came before it. Um, the reason why Congress relented in 1983 and put the Supreme Court over them was because the government insisted on it, because the government was losing, you know, constitutional issues before CAF and had no mechanism for challenging the, that ruling either via certiorari or via habeas. So, you know, I, I think the short answer, Joe, is that the there's no sort of clear requirement that the Supreme Court has to review CAF in all cases. But on the flip side, it's not hard to imagine a case where a litigant, probably not the federal government, could have a serious constitutional objection if he or she had a, you know, colorable constitutional challenge um, where CAF was really the last word. And guys, this is not a hypothetical. There's a case, there, the, the military has a capital case pending right now. It's first in a very long time where the defendant has a series of pretty serious objections to his death sentence, one that he's mentally uh, incompetent, um, one that the sort of current military capital sentencing scheme is unconstitutional after and in light of Apprendi, um, right? These are, you know, sort of classic 
um, attacks on a capital case. And the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces just ruled in November that there was no other remedy available to this guy. His name is Gray um, in the military justice system, which means all he has left is Article Three habeas with its very deferential review. So, you know, this is a big problem that Dalmazi doesn't raise, um, but that I think is, you know, something that is lurking in the background as we're talking about the relationship between the Supreme Court and the military justice system. And it's, in a, in a way, it, it sort of becomes a due process matter. Like, if Article Three is capacious enough to accommodate appellate review in a given context, and it seems as if Congress has forbidden it on its own terms, like on its own grounds, right? Um, don't you have to test that to Congress taking that exception to appellate review uh, that would otherwise be okay under Article Three? Article Three itself wouldn't be an impediment to it. Don't you have to test that with a due process understanding? And I'm not saying what the understanding would be, right? Because I'm sure that people having a due process debate would point to things like the many, many, many years when there were no appeals in criminal matters at all. Right. Yep. Um, no intermediate yep. federal appellate More appeals. The separation right. of powers issue. So I think there. I actually think there are three issues. I think there's the due process issue Joe's describing, which is I think Joe perhaps best framed as a due process right to at least one round of de novo Article Three review. And, and let's keep in mind, right? State prisoners right now have that right because at the very least they're entitled to de novo Supreme Court review of their direct appeals, mm-hmm. right? Wholly aside from EDPA and habeas, right? Um, right? Military prisoners are the only people right now in, in cases falling outside of, because, I mean, sorry, l- let me, in cases that are, fall, that are outside of the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction over CAF, which is itself limited, those cases are the only criminal cases in the U.S. right now where there is no de novo Article Three review at any point. Um, and so, yeah, the first argument is the due process objection that that by itself is unconstitutional. The second argument is a separation of powers argument that, Krishna, I guess you were, you were, you were going to yeah. allude to, right, which is about, you know, giving basically non-Article Three adjudicators um, authority that in effect is superseding that of Article Three adjudicators. And frankly, guys, the third argument is the suspension clause, right, that, you know, insofar as there's no adequate legal remedy uh, remedy to, to test the legality of detention or, in this case, you know, the sentence, that that, you know, by itself raises these unique and habeas-specific constitutional problems as well. But both of these latter two, right, are just arguments to the court that it should revisit its habeas standard that it itself put in place, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's, a, I mean, the, the real question is, so what's the best way to raise it? So Gray is a good example of this. Um, Gray, this recent capital case, um, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces denied what's called a writ appeal petition, which is not appealable to the Supreme Court under 1259. And so the question is, if you're Gray's lawyers, you know, you have a guy who's been sentenced to death. Um, you have no further remedies within the military justice system. You don't have cert. You only have two options left to you, at least in my view at this point. One is to ask the Supreme Court for an original writ of habeas corpus, a la ex parte Bowman right. and Felker. Um, and keep in mind, the Supreme Court hasn't granted one of those since 1925. And the other is to go to an Article Three district court where you're going to lose because, you know, you actually got, you know, full, if not accurate, consideration of your constitutional yeah, you objections. you challenge the standard there, right? And that, that habeas procedure becomes the vehicle that eventually gets to the Supreme Court. 
And that's the question. Right? Yeah. So the question is whether the li- whether whether either the statutory limits on the Supreme Court's jurisdiction over CAF, which are already well entrenched, or the constitutional limits that the court may yet articulate in Dalmazi, um, provide a good vehicle and opportunity for the court in an appropriate case to revisit Burns versus Wilson. Wow. <laughs> And, and if that doesn't tie 37 circles together, I mean, it's like, you know, this is why, I mean, you guys, you know, Christian, I think you said, you said at the top, Dalmazi has so many different like layers of Fed courts issues. Yeah. But it's also part, I mean, you know, just to, to Aditya and I have sort of dueled, have crossed swords before on this question. And it was actually at the cert stage in another case out of CAF, um, where there was a capital case about um, whether um, the sort of military capital sentencing scheme was unconstitutional under Apprendi, right, which I mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, And the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces literally held that it could not decide that question because only the Supreme Court could revisit its prior precedents. Um, I think that's wrong, of course. I mean, I think, right, if the Supreme Court has issued a subsequent decision that calls a prior decision into question, a lower court's allowed to, you know, figure it out. But you have the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces literally saying only the Supreme Court can answer this question. Um, and so the cert petition said, hey, Supreme Court, only <laughs> you can answer this question. <laughs> um, and, and we wrote an amicus brief. I, I wrote an amicus brief on behalf of the National Institute of Military Justice saying, yeah, guys, and not only can only you answer this question, but um, you shouldn't assume that a habeas petition is going to answer this question because of the standard of review. Mm. Um, and that's the first time Aditya filed his brief saying, no, you have no jurisdiction at all. <laughs> so, the, you know, the more things change. Hey, I'm sure that uh, there are uh, great reasons, and in fact, they're probably spelled out in detail in, in Professor Bomsai's brief, which I did read. But but as I was reading it, I couldn't help get the feeling that um, if I if I agree to, ar- to this argument, it, it in very short order, I'm going to be confronting the argument. Um, and by the way, that means the Supreme Court can't hear cases from state Supreme Courts anymore either, right? That that the kind of formalism that would re- give you, I didn't get move that. you to readily assent to. Uh, cool. Yeah. Um, I'm just sharing something I got out of it, which is that <laughs> yeah. it, it would make you this the same thing that would sort of make you readily assent to his approach would. Would deeply problematize, uh, at the very least, Supreme Court review of state Supreme Court decisions. So, so I guess you know I, I would I would sort of Joe take a half step in that direction. I think the next target would not actually be um, state Supreme Courts; it would be territorial Supreme Courts. Um, and so the next the next challenge, if you really wanted to push this would be the next time the Supreme Court takes a case, for example, from the D.C. Court of Appeals, mm-hmm, um, which, mm-hmm. by the way, it just had it just had two, I think, like last week. And it's interesting that Coe puts these uh, – I mean, I went and read Coe at your suggestion as well. And, and, and the, the reasoning there links very closely together the territorial Supreme Courts and the state Supreme yep. Courts. Yep. It's, the, yep. it's about governance of a geographic area in that case, right? And the fact that, you know, surely if, if, if the power of the United States is sufficient to enter the territory and see to it in, in this and that way, surely the judicial power comes along as well, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so, I, mean, so, I, mean, I mean, guys, I think, I think the only way the court – I mean, they're not oblivious to this, right? I think the only way the court rules, you know, against jurisdiction here – is in an opinion that is quite expressly about CAF's unique administrative location mm. and that turns entirely on that, you know, fortuity, entirely because they don't want to open up the can of worms that, Joe, you're, 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 you're articulating. And then there's this interesting um, wrinkle about, about the – and as you point out, this is, I think, totally analogous to the, um, to the ordinary 
criminal side in Article Three courts, but the the president's ability to commute and the do I have this right? Um, is this related to this, or is this the other issue? No, no, this is related. So yeah, this because, is, because it's like because it, it, they're not the final. The, the idea is they're not the final decision maker. And of course, Justice Gorsuch jumps on this to say that you yeah. know, with the unitary executive theory, to say that these are all anything that happens in Article One is ultimately respons- you know, responsive to the president, and the president's not a court. I think that's kind of the. Yeah, no, no, I mean, so, and Justice Alito actually, I think, had the most sophisticated, you know, um, description of this problem at the argument. So um, I didn't actually get a chance to really respond to this because it didn't seem like a good use of my rebuttal time. But I think it's actually overstating the role of the president in approving sentences in the military justice system. Um, the, what, what it basically reduces to is the president does have the power um, through his subordinates to commute sentences, to you know, overturn punishments, to sort of you know, depart downward in the, in the sentencing guidelines lingo. Um, but he can't do anything to depart upward. And the reality is that that's not actually that different from a federal conviction in a civilian court. Right. Um, right? The president has the unquestionable power to pardon the defendant, to commute his or her sentence. Um, you know, it's just a different process to get to the same result. So I don't think that at the end of the day changes the fundamental character. And, and what, what was the Secretary of Defense's discharge power that was related to, wasn't it? Um, it was, right, that, that only, the, right, the secretary can, only the secretary can discharge someone from the military. The president can overrule that. But here's the thing, guys. Like, I think the, the nuanced answer to Justice Alito is, um, yeah, it might be a problem. Uh, um, and it might be the exact problem Adichie is worried about. If Congress gave the Supreme Court the power to review the president's decision to commute a sentence handed down by the military justice system, right? That, that's, that's the exact problem Adich is worried about. But when the question is simply review of a judgment of the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, that problem is not presented. Hmm. What else you got, Joe? I mean, I can think of a lot of other things. <laughs> oh, me too. But, but it means we're going to be here another two hours and we're not going to do that. So. Yeah, we, we, we do have a hard stop today. We do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, meetings and, and such. Um, hey, you know, the, the, the beauty of faculty life, right? We, yeah. they, they expect us to do stuff other than, you know, invent cockamamie arguments for the Supreme Court to, to deal with. <laughs> well, before we do break, though, I did, you know, I think the National Security Law podcast that you do with Bobby is, uh, it was the venue to kind of talk about what it was like to argue. You know, this was like you were decompressing because I think it was, was it like the same, it was like the next day that you recorded it or? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was. It was. Wednesday, it was. I think it was like Wednesday. Wednesday afternoon. Because I had. I had. You know, the argument was 11 a.m. on Tuesday. I had my first federal courts class at 10:30 on Wednesday. <laughs> well, wow. The, the the audio was not available at that point. I'm sure they all consumed the audio as soon as it was available yeah. on Friday. I certainly did. The audio is especially fun if you if you listen to it through OYA and you can sort of have it with the the synced up transcript. The only problem with OYA is I can't listen to it at two x right yeah or, or any yeah. accelerated yeah. speed yeah at least not not as of the last time that I checked. But Steve, I brought this up because I I, I um, you know one of the things you, you brought up was that, like this is the first time that you've argued in front of the court and you answer questions. I, I figured if it was first Mondays or National Security Law podcast, like, would you do this again? Did you enjoy it? Like. And your response was maybe in a case that doesn't have so many concentric layers of of hell. Right? Like, <laughs> there's so many interlocking issues like it was like I'm sure it was like just hell to figure out like the right strategy and all these things. But um, uh, but had you argued before, like in a circuit court of appeals or a district court? Nope. I, yeah. Nope. So this, was this, this was... the first oral argument you've ever done in any court? Um, it was. I mean, you know, unless we count the Morris Tyler Moot Court of Appeals at Yale Law School, um, where I argued as a 3L. <laughs> Then yes, <laughs> I mean I have to say I I, I I don't know if we 
set it up front, but it, I thought you did an amazing job. I, I mean, did, just the I command of these very complex issues in a way which was conversant and inviting of conversation. And it wasn't like, you know, you never fail to answer questions directly or, or pick up on the spirit of the questions. Um, you know, my only wish is that they had been a kind of hotter bench, right? Yeah. And, and really, because I, I think you would have really um, shined even, even more brightly if you'd kind of gotten into the uh, federal courts thicket uh, more deeply. But, but I, I thought you did an amazing job. Thanks. I mean, I think I think the irony is this was a case that really called for the old school Supreme Court approach to oral arguments, which was, you know, give the lawyers actually a little bit of time to thoroughly unpack their presentations and see what questions yeah. follow. Yeah. Yeah. It needed another hour. Yeah. Which they don't do. I mean, you know, I, 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 I was half expecting, you know, the, the chief has done this a couple of times lately. I was half expecting to get up at the podium and have him say, we've decided to give each, each side 10 more minutes. Um but you know the fact that that didn't the fact that he didn't say that I think was was the first clue that maybe they hadn't gotten all the way through you know the the, the eleven layers of of Christian your word not mine hell <laughs> well at least he didn't say at least he didn't like hit the gavel and then say I think we're ready to decide this case right now <laughs> so I, I will confess listen I mean I was you know the Supreme Court issued opinions on on Monday of of this week and I was I was not completely sure that there wouldn't be a dig. Um, you know, a, a sort of a, a one-sentence order dismissing certiorari is improvidently granted. Yeah, no. Um, I mean, there's the there's no grounds for that. I mean, there there's no nothing has changed, and I mean, they're, they're not going to dig it. I no, so, no, no. I mean, but but you know, you, when you when you're in there, I mean, you just, yeah. You, the because uh, here's the thing. I mean, I, the 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 reason why the court usually digs is because something changes or the party's arguments change between right. the cert grant and the merits argument. Um, and the reality is, you know, other than the constitutional jurisdiction question, the case that, you know, was briefed on the merits was the case that was presented at the search stage. Exactly the case. Yeah. 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 So and, and I think, you know, it may well be a nine zip opinion against you. But like, you know, you represented the case as ably as you possibly could have. And and I'm for one, I, like I am dying to see what that nine zip opinion would look like, because like, <laughs> right. I can't see it. Right. I mean, it, it's it, I think yeah. this is a fan, you know, it's it's fantastically complicated and calls for a kind of deft analysis, whichever way it's decided that um, I think we're going to, you know, we're going to talk about it again when it comes down, clearly. And I, and I think Justice Kagan's first oral argument uh, in any court anywhere was as the Solicitor General of the United States at the Supreme yep. Court. So yep. I think other people have had their first arguments at the Supreme Court in any court. Yeah, um, I think that's a bit more pressure, don't you think, Steve? Um, yes and no. I mean, so my friend Lindsay Harrison, who's a partner at Jenner and Block, her first argument before any court was before the Supreme Court in the N. Ken versus Holder case um, in 2009. And, you know, that worked out perfectly well for her. Um, I'll, I'll say this. I, I actually think in one sense, um, you know, it's surreal to be up there. It's bizarre to be standing in front of the nine justices of captive audience. Um, but if there's any group of federal judges to whom a law professor might feel relatively more comfortable arguing. I actually think it's the Supreme Court over, say, like a trial judge, um, you know, who could care less about your broad theories of was John Marshall right in Marbury versus Madison. Totally right. Well, I would say it's very dependent on on who that trial judge is. Well, fair uh, enough. Yeah, and who uh, that panel is. Maybe, I mean, maybe, you know. Uh, yeah. it, it may not, it may, how about this? The trial judge may be in more of a hurry to figure out like exactly where, you know, what, what they have to do next. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Steve. Um, Guys, thank I, you. I know it's been a whirlwind for you, and uh, and we will claim, you know, we will claim substantial credit for the for the cert grant, but we can't claim any credit for the brilliant job you did on the brief and in the argument. I thought it was, like I said, I thought it was great. 
And well, I really appreciate that, guys. And, and, and frankly, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, every little thing that you guys were able to do to help Mick you know, bring more attention to this case, I think, was, was not for naught. Awesome. All right. Talk Take to care, you later, man. Steve. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. All right, I'm going to hit stop.